hop picking in Kent is a family tradition. Some have been coming here for 40 years and it's not unusual to find three generations in one picking team. A great many come from South London and whereas once they often walked all the way, today they converge on paddock wood by train, by lorry, by car and even by bicycle. Before the war, 7,000 people used to work in these hop fields during the roughly three-week picking period. But today, although there is no shortage of volunteers, the number has been reduced to about half. Only the best people being selected. Pickers are accommodated in huts, which are quickly transformed into cosy replicas of their own homes. Many have already spent odd weekends here preparing their huts. The whole community becomes a self-contained little town with even a camp medical officer. For that matter, more than one future hop picker has been born here. Few people realize that beer is not actually brewed from hops. The hops merely provide that slightly bitter flavor. In fact, they'd been used in this country for many hundreds of years for flavoring food and medicinal purposes before anyone thought of adding them to beer. Even so, in the reign of King Henry VIII, its use was banned. And it wasn't until the 17th century that they became an essential component of the drink. These days, oast houses, and many are over 300 years old, are a familiar landmark in Kent. They're used for hop drying, which is also an art in itself. The aim is to reduce the moisture content to 8%, and the men who work here are so skilled that they can test progress by the feel of the hop alone. At the end of their stay, a special barbecue is staged, a gay finale to a healthy and profitable holiday. This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello, Lupin Loopies. Cumulone comrades and Myrosine mates, and welcome to another session on the Hop Forward podcast. There's no shadow of a doubt that the craft beer revolution owes much of its success and prominence due to the humble India Pale Ale. As we all know through historians and beer writers, the passage to India back in the 18th century was a lengthy excursion, giving the beer ample opportunity to change in its qualities while stored in wood for prolonged periods. But there's no denying that the humble IPA has long since been on an equally unparalleled voyage ever since. Rescued from closure in the 1960s, Anchor Brewery, arguably one of America's first craft breweries of the modern era, released Liberty Ale in 1975 and was the archetype for the modern day IPA. America's love of extravagant flavours and hot bills of biblical proportions counteracted the myriad of bland lagers offered from the same handful of multinational drinks corporations. Taking inspiration from English brewers such as Fuller, Smith & Turner, breweries such as Sierra Nevada, Goose Island and Stone drove the IPA craze to dizzy new heights, showing us Brits what brewers could really do when unleashed with hot flowers and pellets. 
Whereas we gave the USA the template for the IPA, our stateside cousins gave us Cascade, Chinook, and the revered Citra. Put that in your hop cannon and smoke it. In an Atlantic rivalry that can only be paralleled by the Beatles and the Beach Boys, it wasn't long before British brewers were taking American hops and smashing out punchy IPAs of their own, such as Jaipur, Gamma Ray, Cannonball and Punk IPA. And thus the cycle continues. When juicy, hazy IPAs came onto the scene several years back, Manchester's Cloudwater Brew Co. rode the crest of the wave, producing bigger, bolder, fruity IPAs, setting a new precedent for the capabilities of hop-infused beers in this country. Most contemporary breweries of notoriety have largely gained their success off the back of a flagship IPA, and I've yet to meet a brewer who does not have several variations in their core range and plenty more in their back catalogue. The types of IPA are endless. American IPAs, New England IPAs, hazy IPAs, double IPAs, triple IPAs, Belgium IPAs, session IPA, milkshake IPAs, double dry hopped IPAs, West Coast IPAs, English IPAs, black IPAs, grapefruit IPAs, shrimp IPA. That's about all the IPAs I know. I hope you got the Forrest Gump reference there. If you didn't get that, you'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, There's actually a really good article on IPAs and how a session IPA isn't actually an IPA at all written by Matthew Curtis and Pellicle, which is worth checking out. I'll put the link for that in the show notes. But as you've gathered, there are lots of IPAs out there. And just because there is a lot of something doesn't necessarily mean it's all very good. I was judging a national beer competition recently in the Session IPA category and only came across what I felt was one Session IPA out of 11 submissions. Though again, it can be argued, as Matt does in his article, there's no such thing as a Session IPA because it is an oxymoron. I mean, there were plenty of great golden ales and pale ales. Just a lack of anything really slightly resembling an IPA of lower strength bar the previous one I mentioned. This is why I feel marketing plays a huge part in the modern IPA. Call a 3.8% hoppy pale beer a pale ale and chances it will sit in your cold store for prolonged periods. However, call it a West Coast Session IPA and you can guarantee you will shift it reasonably quickly. But at what cost? As I discovered judging the Session IPA category, I felt a little bit shortchanged by these IPAs. And as a consumer, you'd be entitled to feel that should a brewer label there be one thing but deliver another. And if you know my Emmanuel's Last Supper double IPA story, I can tell you that I indeed have too been found guilty and had to make an atonement to the craft beer brethren for my sins. IPAs sound easier to brew than they actually are. The good ones at least. Hop creep, stability in hazy IPAs and biotransformation deserve an entire mini-series of their own. And yet the vast amount of IPAs that suffer from over-attenuation, diacetyl, murk and a myriad of grassy, skunky flavours goes to show that it's not simply a case of dry-hopping them with 30 grams per litre and hoping for the best. Going back to the Session IPA judging day, halfway through the proceedings, my own India Pale Ale ship came in and delivered a box from a small brewery making big waves called Pipeline Brewing Co. Based in Cornwall, but a short stone's throw from Verdon, who we all know are a much-loved producer of vibrant, juicy IPAs. 
Pipeline Brew Co, as you will hear, is definitely on the right side of the line when it comes to brewing and packaging IPAs. Take it from me, should their beers be placed in a blind tasting lineup with the usual suspects, it would be hard to tell the real Kaiser Soze apart. They're that good. You can imagine to my astonishment when I discovered that Pipeline are based in Johnny Cooper's garage on the side of his house. Though, by the time you listen to this, operations may have moved to a small unit just up the road. The fact that someone can brew a double IPA or a double dry hopped IPA with as much attention to detail as the big names in contemporary craft beer in their garage or garage if you're from the States and package it in can without astronomical amounts of dissolved oxygen causing discolorization and off flavours is a miracle in and of itself. There's a lot to be learned from Johnny, a passionate brewer with an insatiable thirst for juicy IPAs. I would highly recommend getting hold of his beers to taste and see for yourself that he certainly knows his stuff when it comes to brewing. As you probably gathered, this episode is centred entirely around IPAs and Johnny's own journey to hopping new heights as a brewer showing big promise. So while you go and grab yourself an IPA to accompany this episode, I'm going to crack one open myself in this week's... This week's brewery shout out goes to Bristol based brewery Fierce and Noble, who were very kind to send me uh, a range of their beers. I've not actually got around to having these yet, so I'm literally opening this for the first time on here. If you go on their website, got some very nice, funky branding. Um, but what I've been sent looks like fairly small batch stuff. So I said I was going to crack open IPA. Um, this is a Galaxy Pale. So good on you guys in spirit of this episode, what we were talking about, um, cornicing session IPAs. You just kind of waded in and called it a pale. So I'm going to open this. So just while I pour this, uh, Fierce and Noble are defined by independence. They're committed to bring modern seasonal beers while not throwing out heritage and tradition, but just merely just basically building upon it. So here we go. I can smell that from a mile off. So peach and passion fruit aromas coming through. It's very hazy. So let's let's try this. That is lovely. That in keg on a hot summer day would, and at four percent as well, would just go down so well again and again. So, um, hoping to get Fierce and Noble on the podcast soon um, to talk about their brewery and beers. But um, in keeping with the episode, would I call that a Nipa? Do you know I, I might call that a Nipa? I mean, it's got oats in it. And it's got that pillowy kind of feel. I'm surprised they didn't call it a New England IPA and opted for a Galaxy Pale. But again, all this ties in with what we're talking about. So, Fierce and Noble. Um, looking forward to trying their other beers. And I recommend that you get hold of them as well. So, if you head over to their website, which is fierceandnoble.com, you can find out where their beers are stocked if you're in the southwest of the UK. Um, but I suggest you try and hunt them down, particularly if you're in the area, um, because what I've tasted of this so far it is very nice. And I am certainly looking forward to having the other ones. So that's fierceandnoble.com. And if you go to uh, the stockist section, you can hunt down their beers from there. <laughs> Thank you. 
Each and every week, we have partnered with Brew School to bring you the latest brewing job from brewing-jobs.com uh, in the UK beer industry. And this week, we want to highlight a job with Mad Squirrel Brewery. Now, I must confess, I think I've had a Mad Squirrel beer before, um, but I've chosen this brewery in particular because my daughter likes squirrels. <laughs> So there you go. Um, a good reason to highlight a job as any. But uh, Mad Squirrel Brewery are a forward-thinking contemporary brewery based just outside London at the foot of the Chiltern Hills. And they are looking for a motivated, positive, dynamic brewer. With your experience, uh, you should be able to confidently work the floor and lead the other brewers by example. They're looking for a professional that shares their vision of constant quality improvement, has got the right work ethic to easily integrate into their working culture and make the company grow to the next level. Some of the duties and responsibilities include but aren't limited to work the floor with all the day-to-day tasks involved in brewing. I'm sure you know what they are. Work production on their three-vessel brew house, brew house maintenance, stock control, fermentation control, running their canning line, yeast management, and all that kind of thing. In terms of requirements, they're after a professional brewing experience in work production and cold side two or more years. Uh, Packaging experience is not counted unless it contains the managing of packaging lines. So if you just worked on the packaging line but not in work production, I think this might not be the role for you. They're after someone who's experienced in brewery microbiology, uh, has got some leadership experience, is a good team player and lots of other things. What they offer is some competitive remuneration, performance-based bonuses and a pension scheme and the opportunity to progress in a modern craft brewery environment. It's a full-time job. Uh, Salary is up to £25,000 per year plus a bonus scheme. And if you are interested in this job with this great brewery, make sure you head over to brewing-jobs.com and hit the apply to this job button. And this could be the start of your next career move in the world of beer. Finally, if you're a fan of Hop Forward, make sure you follow us on all the socials at Hop Forward Beers and check out our website, hopforward.beer, where you can hear more podcasts like this one to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. And if you're a member of the British Guild of Beer Writers, you'll be pleased to know that on Monday the 14th of September from 6pm, I'll be running a course on building a brand, why people don't buy what you're selling, they buy from you. In this session, I'll unpack some of the misconceptions behind branding before exploring what a brand actually is. The aim of the session is to understand why branding is important for beer communicators, consultants, broadcasters and professionals within the beverage industry and how to maximise the effect of interactive with time for discussion and Q&A and is suitable for both novice and experience. So make sure you get there early to get time yet. If you're interested in that, head over to beerguild.co.uk forward slash events and find the links and book on from there. Right, so today's episode is a really good one. If you like a good IPA, Thank you.
today on the show, I'm joined by Johnny Cooper from Pipeline Brewing Co. Hello. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Um, not bad, thanks. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, a couple of weeks back, I asked a question on the UK Brewing and Beer Professionals Facebook group for some recommendations for yeah. some breweries that people might not have heard of and um, but are making waves. And Pipeline Brewing came up again and again, particularly because of your IPAs. So... Yeah. Um, uh, today I want to talk about uh, brewing IPAs, but bef- before we crack open a couple of beers and, and talk about um, the style, can can you share with us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the industry, and about Pipeline Brewing Co? Yeah, sure. Um, this it's a small business. Um, it's it's basically just me. My wife helps out, and a load of friends um, come and help out when they can. So when there's a canning run, there's loads of people here packaging. You know what packaging's like. Nobody loves doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just get as much help as I can. But we, we started small, but growth in this industry seems to happen quite quickly. If you if you get your beers right, the demand is rocketing. You, you, you need to grow. And I'm sure we'll touch on growth if we get chatting about the government's plans for SBR, but maybe we can touch on that later. Yep. But yeah, a bit more about me. Um, I've been brewing for probably getting close to 12 years now. Um, a fair bit of that was home brewing. That's what got me into the industry in the first place, just home brewing. Um, it's a pretty well-trodden route, I should think. A lot yeah, of people yeah. get do a bit of home brewing and then get into the industry that way. Um, but I'm probably slightly different from others. that I haven't gone and worked for another brewery in between and gained the experience that way. It was just purely my own curiosity and scientific yearning to learn a bit more about this amazing beer that um seems to be so easy to make yet to begin with my god it wasn't <laughs> absolutely shocking um but i think that's part of my character that it was so bad that i thought well how the hell can you make beer what what is, it, what is this all about and it was it was starting with kits and i think that's essentially where a lot of homebrewers went wrong because the kits back then weren't particularly great. They didn't come with any hops. Um, it was just a malty soup that you cooked up on your on your kitchen worktop, upset like the wife, and made the whole house smell. It's like beer cordial, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, quite quite exactly that. Um, so yeah, I started off with kits. Didn't do very well with those, um, and decided to think outside the box. And how how did the professionals do it? And of course, you start researching that, and you get into mashing etc like, what the hell is that so it was a very steep learning curve to begin with but i think by building your own small homebrew setup you get to learn the process inside out um and that's been a massive benefit for, for me the whole building building the equipment you know if anything goes wrong you know exactly where to look yeah you know exactly how it all works and why a process isn't working or it is working. So that, that kind of knowledge is, for me, I think that's really key. If anyone's going to start homebrewing, build your own kit. You know, don't don't necessarily expect you've got to go and buy it off the shelf. I know there's a lot of things you can go and buy off the shelf now. There's all sorts of brands. It must be a booming industry, you know, but maybe have a go at building your own kit first, understand the process a bit more. I think you make better beers that way. Well, I think it's come so far, hasn't it? I mean, even over the last, five or six years i remember when i first started home brewing searching for a like a, a stainless steel homebrew bucket and i couldn't find anything and then i remember when um, an american company called ss brew tech like yeah. launched one i was like oh my goodness like why hasn't anyone thought of this earlier this is exactly what i've been looking for now yeah. you can buy like pro equipment 
on a small scale. You know, I mean, I've got a one-barrel SS Brutech Unitank, you know, and when it when it <laughs> arrived, I was like, my word, it's just like, you know, I've I've been in well, I've worked in a bigger brewery that has equipment that is nowhere near as good as this one barrel uni tank, you know, and I've been in breweries where it all looks like it's held together by a shoestring. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's come so far. Um, so your, your, your brewery there, you were saying just before we start recording, when you showed me, um, yeah. I, I asked whether you were in the brewery and you said you were, and why don't you tell us where your brewery is? Yeah, it's um, in a big garage attached to my house, so um, that in itself was fairly difficult to set up, getting all the right permissions, etc. But um, I guess it's the same when you're setting up a brewery anyway. You have to satisfy EHO, HMRC. You know, it's it's a well-trodden route, but doing it all on your own without consultants, um, yeah, it was fairly tricky to begin with. But now I've outgrown the space, need to move out of here. Mm. Um and that's that's part of our expansion plans to move up the road. There's a building just in the process of being built for us now. When I say being built for us, it's being built on an industrial estate, and we're going to be renting it. Uh, but yeah, it's a much much bigger space, um, and we're going to need some bigger brewing equipment to fill that space, of course. Yeah. Um, so what sort of capacity are you there? Because I saw your I don't know if they're um, uni tanks. Yeah, they're uni tanks. Yeah. Um, there's two uni tanks there and a bright tank there, six hectolitres. Um, I kind of double brew into those. When I first set up, I wasn't sure whether the, it was going to actually take off. As anyone that starts a business isn't really sure. So I hedged my bets a little bit and um, just built the brewery at two and a half barrel. Um, but with a pretty small mash tun, only three hectolitre mash tun, which isn't really big enough to brew big beers and yeah. the kind of beers that I like to brew. So I have to double brew if I'm going to fill these fermenters so brew day for me is pretty long pretty long-winded affair i'm so looking forward to getting just a, a bigger bigger setup so i can cut my brew day in half by yeah. four hours yeah, it's going to be great so do you do, you do this full-time is this like your full-time job no no it's going to become full-time in october when this new unit's finished um but no i've been doing it part-time so well it's a full-time job as anyone knows yeah, but yeah. Got <laughs> another full-time job so i'm basically doing two full-time jobs burning the candle and all my spare time just spent brewing if if I'm not down the pub drinking it perhaps but yeah <laughs> gravity readings um, temperature checks yeah <laughs> well you've got to miss market research is the way I describe it it's got to be done there you go yeah so yeah it's um I'm a carpenter by trade um but I've been building houses for people for the last 20 years and of course that takes a lot of time as well um and commitment but this is this is my passion this is what I really really love to do so I'm in a lucky position where I've um, managed to push my business to the point where I can turn it into a full-time mm. business. And I think I think it's uh, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I meet a lot of people through doing the Hot Four podcast and and through my business who are um, like self basically, where they've started a brewery and they've, you know they're doing it part time, whatever, and then they've hit yeah. that point where they're like, I, I need to basically take that jump to doing this yeah. full time or to upscaling. And you tend to, when you go and visit a lot of places, particularly like some of the, I say larger breweries, they're, they're not, in comparison to some of the massive breweries, they're not that big at all, but like, you know. Um, it's all relative. Yeah, exactly. But you, you go to some of these, these larger, small microbreweries, so to speak, 
Yeah. And, um, you know, you ask how they got set up and so on. And there's, there's usually, you know, someone with some deep pockets somewhere. But then on yeah. the flip side, there are lots of people I meet like you where it's like, you know, they've built it themselves. They've kind of bootstrapped, begged, borrowed, stolen, whatever, um, yeah. to, to, to get their kits. Like, how do you then go from where you're at now to scaling up into a unit with a larger kit because I think in some ways that that scale up is harder than just getting the investor and going in like going all in if you know what I mean yeah absolutely um that there's two routes to that isn't it you can get investment like you say someone with deep pockets but I feel with that that you, you're kind of losing your independence and that's what the whole independent brewery thing is about that you mm. know you make your own decisions you brew the beers that you like to brew that, that's basically my ethos with the brewery. I, I brew beers that I personally like to drink, um, which sounds selfish, but um, it, it seems to work because the beers that I've been brewing for the last few years, I'm not saying they're um, unique. There's a lot of other breweries that do them, but it, it seems to hit hit the spot. Um, I'm not jumping outside of my comfort zone too much. And sour beers have got a place, and a load of my mates love sour beers. Mm. Uh, I'm on the fence with them, and I've had a few good ones, but it's not something that I'd really, <laughs> I'd really would have wanted to base a business around to begin with. And um, sure, there's plenty of successful breweries. Look at Mills; they're, they're fantastic. Look at them; they're probably one of the best sour and mixed fermentation breweries around, aren't they, in the UK? Mm. Um, and they've had humble beginnings too. It's a small family-run business for them. So, um, I, I think if you're good at what you do, you can be successful um, without other people's money. Um, but you're right, the, the next stage is a difficult one and that's taking a lot more effort from me um, and I'm not exactly sure how all the money's going to come together but um, the plan is to do a crowdfunder to raise a bit of initial funds. Um, that'll certainly help get a tap room on the go, um, which we're really looking forward to doing. Yep. I think getting the customers in front of us and being able to come and see the brewery because obviously with it being here, no one can come and see it really, it's on your it's in your private space and it's difficult to share that with other people. So a tap room's going to be going to be key to it. Um, and I think a crowdfunder would probably help pave the way towards that because people want want to see some reward for what they're putting in. And if you're giving them beer rewards, happy days. People will come flocking for that. Hopefully, um, the, the second thing we're looking at doing is trying to get some grant funding. Some there's some EU funding around in Cornwall because it's. A, it's, it's not the easiest place to set up a business. Um, there's a population of not even a million during the winter months. I think it's 750,000 people live here. Wow. Um, and during the summer, that pretty much quadruples up to three and a half million, which is which is great, great for industry if you're in the tourism um, industry, but difficult if you're a brewery that wants to make money year-round. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a difficult industry mm. down here. You have to be selling it nationally, um, which is where most of our sales go. We sell very little around here. Yeah, we keep we've got a local fan base and a local outlets, which of course was where we started. Um, but to get the success that we've had, we've um, shipped it way out of Cornwall. It go, I think the furthest we sell it now is up in Oban, which is superb. You know, I never, I never dreamt in my wildest dreams that I'd be getting such popularity all around the country. Mm. With, the beers that I was making. Well, uh, should, should we um, should we crack open a beer? Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll give you my ten penneth worth, both both on the beer and, and what I thought 
about Pipeline when I've, I've had the double IPA and, and saw it from a distance because little yeah, sneak pre- little sne- before, yeah, right? no I hadn't little sneak preview I, I didn't realise you were set up in a garage so um, which will which I'll come on to in a minute but um, so I mean I've got two here I've got the uh, Monster Wave Neeper yeah um, uh, I don't like the word Neeper for some reason I don't know why I said it I, I always kind of rally against it say I'm going to call it a New England IPA but I, um, yeah there you go Neeper slips yeah, out Neeper Freudian is- slip <laughs> Or what the, do you call a double IPA? Is that a double IPA or a deeper or a dipper? Oh gosh! You know, this see, I wouldn't have a problem calling it a dipper, but I, I don't know. It's it's that neeper sound. Neep. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, well, so given that we're talking about the New England IPA, should we should we crack that one open? Yeah, go for that. So, um, so um, now, as I, as I said um, before, we start recording. I've promised to share this with my other half yeah um so i'm gonna pour pour my bit first and then i'll have to, I'll have to pour hers and uh... yeah she can't miss out on this mate i think she'll love it if she likes the new england ipa style i'm sure she'll love this she's got quite an eclectic beer mix she um she doesn't like sours or in, or stouts anything dark Although no my she, wife's the same um but then she likes Doombar. <laughs> um, and 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 Yuki Brown, they're, they're like her favourite two beers, which um, I always find it really, really weird seeing a Doombar being poured into a, um, like a, a, you know, a tulip wildcard yeah. brewer, brewery glass. Um, yeah. yeah, my wife's exactly the same. I think it's just that the beer's slightly moved on and the more fruity flavours you can get from adding hops because I'm not sure how many hops they put into Doombar certainly no late hops is it it's not going to be I'm not dry sure. hop or anything it's just a traditional style of beer I'm not which really... has got its place you know no, I'm not no sure I've seen a hop in its life to be honest right I'm just going to nip out and give it this hang on a sec so that was a first for the Hot 4 podcast <laughs> <laughs> was it excellent yes so um, we were talking the other night about um, around November it will be two years since I started it and we'll be hitting episode 100 so we're talking about what to do and she was like well I could be your guest on the podcast so um here's me thinking I could have a panel with you know with Dea with um Bernie Sky with you know Cloudwater no my wife is like I'll be your guest so um that might be a fun thing might be like a bit like the um Michelle Obama podcast (laughs) Um, well, she's got something interesting to say, mate. Go for it. Well, yeah, you? absolutely. No, she definitely has. Um, well, uh, well. Cheers. Um, yeah. Cheers. Is she going to give tasting notes on this as well? Is she going to no, give it'll just it, it'll, she'll give feedback to me. So um, I'll, I'll pass it on. Cool. Now, as I said um, just before we crack the beer open, I I genuinely thought looking at the artwork on the cans what I'd heard about you and uh, well the fact that it was in cans and tasting the the dipper four slash double IPA I genuinely thought you were much bigger than you are because when I cracked open that double IPA and tasted it I was like this for me is and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you but th- this for me is like comparable with the beer you'd get from like Cloudwater you know it, I, I was I was really blown away by it which is why I, I've had to resist opening these other two, and I'm yeah. just I'm just tasting this now, 
and it's and it, again, I, it's it, it, it is so unbelievably juicy, and it's the kind of thing that if it had a Verdant label on, I would believe it came from Verdant. It's it. Wow. It, I'm just yeah. I mean, talk, talk to me about this beer, and then I've got a load of questions on how it is you're brewing beers like this. Yeah, well, just from your house. You say that. <laughs> I don't want to sound big-headed, but that, that isn't the first time I've heard that um, comparison. But I, I'm so humble in that that I'm, I'm amazed because I never thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be rubbing shoulders with the giants of the brewing industry that, that I seem to be working with at the minute. It's mm. phenomenal. It's, 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 if you can make a good beer, then you're accepted. You know, there's a lot of shit beer out there. Let's be honest, there is. There's... Uh, there's there's a lot of macro beer that I won't touch anymore. Yeah. Trying to put that completely. Um, but when there's good beer, I think it should be applauded, no matter how big or small you are. Absolutely. I think the beer is what does the talking, and that, that's certainly what's done the talking for Pipeline, I think. Um, we've not got a massive output, only because I've only got those two fermenters and a bright tank. It's not that easy to produce a lot of beer each month, so um, we'll produce a, a price list or go out to our customers every every month and it's it's gone straight away you know you've got to be quick to get to buy it um hopefully we can expand our markets a bit more and get this beer to more people and i think i think it's a it's a great product and it's just all about logistics and getting it out to people yeah um well i can so certainly yeah. say if there are any any listeners who run beer shops listening to this i i would absolutely recommend you trying to get hold of some because it, i it, it, i mean i am I am blown away. It takes a lot to blow me away with a beer. I like a lot of beers, you know, and I speak positive about a lot of breweries because I, I, I tend, I just, you know, I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of, of getting flack and I'll give constructive yeah. feedback, you know, if I need to. Yeah. Um, but to be blown away, like, I, it, it's just, it ticks all the boxes. So, um, b- before before I ask some technical questions on on how it is you made this in your garage, and how <laughs> and how you got it into can from your garage, yeah. Um, I'm, I well, firstly, I'll start with like I mean, there's there's no doubt that IPAs are a mainstay of modern beer, and and um, the variations on the style are, are so diverse. So, in your opinion, when you're looking to for inspiration for your IPAs, like who who do you think are some of the producing some of the best IPAs out there at the moment? Oh, you've, you've already said Verdant. I mean, that's going to be on the top of everybody's list, and they're so local to me that they're going to be, they're going to be up there as well. But um, Daya, I think Daya have always been very good. Yeah. And they're certainly on the top of their game now. But you, you can list all of those top guys. As, um, there's Cloudwater. You can't dismiss Cloudwater. They've been around for a long time, but they still keep banging out some amazing beers. Mm. Um some some are not to my taste, but you know I I can't enjoy every beer that's out there. I don't like all the styles, um, but Cloudwater definitely. Um, Wylam, Wylam, they're a long way away, but they're making some good beers. Um, Alpha Delta, new newish brewery. Um, ah, yeah, superb. I've not had any of those, but I've seen them, and I've heard good things. Yeah, you've not had any. Well, you maybe you should you should get in touch with those or try and find some because they are they are great beers. Um, another brewery like Little Monster that we did this collab with. Some of their beers are amazing too. So there's there's lots of smaller breweries that shouldn't be dismissed. It shouldn't just be the big guys that you always think yeah. want a moniker. Well, 
Well, that's. Um, I think that's that. You've touched on a good point there because um, I mean I recognise the Little Monsters logo again. They're they're a brewery I've I've never tried, um, mm. but I, th- I think it is very easy to, particularly with IPAs, to look to those big hitters and think, well, I, I know I'm going to get a big juicy IPA, and because well. I think IPAs tend to fall into one of three categories, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. And unfortunately, as you said, there there is, and actually is quite a lot of bad beer out there. Mm. And um, I, I was on a beer judging panel recently in the session IPA category, and there was some great beers, but they were all, they were golden ales. They weren't session IPAs, you know. So, yeah. And but they were all entered as session IPAs, and and um, you know, if you're a customer and you're expecting that big juicy flavor or at least a session ipa and then you get a golden ale you're going to feel really short changed so i mean what what do you think just from having maybe had some of the beers like ipas where you think well that's, that's really not hit the mark what what do you think are some of the pitfalls that some brewers might be making when it comes to making an ipa well i, I get this bit of flack sometimes that i call a beer an ipa and someone will say well, it's a lo- it's a lovely pale. It's not an IPA in my book, or that dipper that you drank last week um, at seven point five percent. I've had people question whether that's a dipper. They say that's an IPA strength. Um, but I, I think really, if you if you're making the beer taste like the style, that that's key. It, the alcohol percentage of it, it's not irrelevant because obviously the alcohol body is important in these beers. But if you mm. can make a, a seven point five percent double IPA tastes like an 8.5 or a 9 and it still tastes the same it's juicy it's thick it's got the aroma I think you're onto a winner I, I don't I don't think people um, I think people get a bit held up in the styles and think oh, yeah. it's got to match it's got to match exactly I, I think it's so diverse now that the styles are helpful maybe as you said for a customer to, to choose a beer but so long as you're within those guidelines roughly I think I think go for it yeah just in, innovate slightly a lot of beers, I'll put, I'll make sure they've got plenty of body so that they, they can take the extra hops that I put in there. I'm not shy with the hops at all, um, and that that's important, really. Just, just be prepared to go for it. And- yeah, I um, read a really interesting article from Matthew Curtis, um, who writes for Mash Marketing on their blog about IPAs, um, arguing that the session IPA isn't really an IPA because you know with beer style guidelines you know effectively is a hoppy pale ale i mean do do you think that when it comes to the lower end of the abv range i mean what's your opinion on that do you think a session ipa is a a good descriptor or do you think it's more of a marketing thing because let's face it pale ales don't sell as well as a session ipa does quote end quote yeah i think you're right i think it's probably trendy to call it a session ipa and that's why so many beers are called a session ipa um pale ales have been a, a market there's been a market for pale ales for years and they've existed forever i think pale ales but you could call a pint of tribute a pale ale mm. and that's very different to a pale ale that i would produce so maybe the session ipa label gives gives the consumer an idea that yes there's going to be more hops in there or it's going to be more hop forward um, on the nose the aroma or the whatever it is they're looking for in that beer it's going to be slightly drier maybe a bit sharper i don't know but um it's not going to be maybe quite so easy drinking as a pale perhaps, but yep. um, I think it, it, it's such a blurred boundary. It's a very, I think the two beers are pretty much interchangeable. Mm. Just how you market it. 
I know marketing's probably fifty percent of for fifty percent of the beer. You know, if you don't if you don't know the brewery, like you didn't know Pipeline, and you picked it off the shelf, what would you go for? Would you go for the fact that it's got session IPA on there or pale, or because you like the picture on the front? Who knows what people choose when they're at that point of point of purchase with such an array of beers in front of you? It's it's a difficult difficult thing to know what a customer really wants at the end of the day. But as long as you're making a beer that taste how you thought it was going to taste you're winning yeah because your customers know the beers that you're going to produce and what you're known for eventually once you get a brand um established people come to you for the beers that they like to drink because you're going to be producing them like that all the time yeah well i think marketing and branding is a huge element of it like massive um because people first and foremost buy with their eyes and so, although I am a brewer, um, albeit I'm, I'm not working in a commercial brewery anymore, I still like to think of myself as a brewer. Like my my background is in design and branding and marketing, and so um, you know I come at it from that angle. And I know for a fact that the breweries that have really good marketing and really good branding and make really good beer have just got like effectively like the holy trinity of um, of a beer on their hands, whereas. You know, sometimes I remember this one beer I had um, and I do a talk on uh, branding sometimes for various events and stuff. But I, there was this one beer I had in Norfolk years ago um, and it was it was a best bitter and it had won various awards and uh, was stocked in a supermarket. Yeah. And it was absolutely exceptional. I mean, you know, for the beer style it was, it was amazing the, the balance the aroma the flavor ev- all the elements were absolutely spot on the branding was awful they literally <laughs> used like comic sans on the front of a a one colored label i mean there wasn't it wasn't even really a brand it was like the you know a chimp had designed it now the only reason i bought that beer is because that was the only local ale they had but if there was you know if your beers like you know your, those nice looking cans had been next to it you know i would have gone for that because that to me just from the eye appeal says buy me i'm yeah. going to be nice you know um and uh, yeah, yeah it's having well, that big shout out for the design side of it it's a friend of mine called kieran who right um, lives locally to me. He's he's a designer, and he he's such a good friend. He does he does the designs for beer basically. Um, I give him a name, and he just comes back with four or five designs saying, "Here you go, mate. What do you think of these?" And I find it really hard to choose the best one because they're all amazing. He's such a talented guy, but he he's so demure that he won't he won't take any recognition for it. He wants he doesn't want his name on any of the labels or anything. I, th- I think he's the real hero of the marketing side of oh. this business. He's, he's, he's a legend in my eyes. So shout out to you, Kieran, if you're listening. Yeah. From, from one designer to another, Kieran, re- really, I was really impressed when I saw them. Um, and it's, it's like I say, it's taken a lot of discipline for me not to open them from my stash <laughs> until today. Um, so, well, I mean, what do you think makes a good IPA from a brewer's perspective? I, I mean, I thought we could go through the four main ingredients from your perspective when making your IPAs. Um, yeah. So let, let's let's start with water because on on your website you talk about using Cornish water. Like, what's, yeah. like, what's your water profile like? How do you treat it? And what does it bring to a style? Because you know, given that IPA is a very hot forward style, you know, yeah. you could be mistaken in thinking that water's not quite as important and lower down in the pecking order. So uh, let's, oh, man. let's talk about your liquor. 
It's 95% of the beer, isn't it, in a 5% yeah. IPA? It's, it's massively overlooked, and I think that's the mistake a lot of brewers make, is that they just think, oh, I'll just stick a little bit of a standard water treatment salt in there, which may have a bit of gypsum, a bit of calcium chloride, whatever in there. They just chuck it in. I think there was a, was it called DWB or something? Yeah, DWB, yeah. Murphy's did. Um, I went to a local brewery down here called Skinner's years ago and did a brew day with them, um, and they were just chucking this stuff in, and it kind of worked for the beers they were doing, but there was a harshness to their beers, and the scientist in me thought, right, there's got to be a better way of doing that. Um, so you'd send the water off, get it analysed. That's the best. That's the first thing you should be doing as a brewer. Definitely get your water checked out, find out what's actually in it or isn't in it, and adjust it so that it's got the minerals in there that you really want it to have. Yeah. Um, the water down here is really soft. There's very little in it. Um, so I don't have to put too much back in. Mm. Uh, for the IPAs that I brew, I tend to not use any gypsum at all, if I'm honest. Um, I use calcium chloride in quite large amounts, um, a little bit of Epsom, um, and just a little bit of ordinary table salt um, just to get the mineral profile just how I want it, um, just to get that juicy flavour because I think if you don't do that, you're going to get the astringency and the sharpness that you get from the hops. Um, they're bound to come out. The amount of hops that we're putting in, you you would definitely get some astringency, which, you know, by experimental beers in the early stages, you found that out straight away, the bitter and horrible things. Um, but now, got the water dialed right in. That's super important for these IPAs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, w- would you treat a New England IPA slightly different at all? Or, um, because I think, um, for my, I've never brewed one, to be honest. No, actually, tell, tell a lie. I, bre- I brewed one once when I was leaving the Sheffield Brewery Company and handing over to the, um, the new brewer. And, mm. um, yeah, it, it didn't turn out well. That was my fault. Marv, if you're listening, you can blame me for that, that, <laughs> that fail. Um, but you know, I mean, w- 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 between even between the different types of IPA, would you? Because I mean, I know, I know, I do, I know you brew some other styles and stuff. But it's when I look at your website, it's mostly IPAs. So like, it's um, yeah. you know, would you would you adjust accordingly with something like a New England IPA? Because it's obviously got that yeah. kind of pillowy kind of mouthfeel, hasn't it? Yeah, well, that's what you got. That's what you got to aim for. Um, you do have to adjust it depending on, sometimes depending on the. the the amount of hops you're going to throw at it. If you're going to dry hop it with 35 grams per litre of hops, which sounds obscene, um, it's doable so long as you've got your water profile right. And that's that's a big part of it. The, the water has to be perfect. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you're going to get off flavours which carry through to the finished beer. You know, tasting this beer, you it's, it's juicy and sweet, isn't it? Mm. Um, but the amount of hops in this one, I think this one was close to 25 20, 25 grams per litre hops yep. in there. So um, no astringency at all. But if you don't get your water right, you'd definitely be tasting like a, a, a finishing bitterness, which I, I don't think people enjoy. Yeah. So what I exactly would... is it that's um, out of those salts that's stopping that astringency and that, that bitterness? Is it the calcium chloride or um, the Epsom? Yeah, I or... think so. I think it's the, the lack of gypsum as well. Right. I, I used to use gypsum in the early days in a lot of beers just because you did everyone used gypsum yeah because you associate um, that with birthnization don't you yeah absolutely 
And so it, when I first started brewing, I was burtonizing my water big style. And I think that was um, half the problem with making the shit beers I was making because it wasn't, I was trying to make this lovely tasting beer and it just tasted sharp and astringent. And then through trial and error and um, a bit of experimentation, realized that it, it's definitely the, the water treatment. So get that right, get your pH right in your mash, you know, add, add as much acid as you need to to get the pH where you want it. For these, probably aiming at 5.3 for the mash um, rather than 5.2. You know, we're talking 0.1 of a percent, 0.1 of a um, degree on the pH here, but it's, that makes quite a difference because it's quite, it's, I don't know whether you know about pH, but it's logarithmic, the, the scale. So every little change makes quite a big difference in, in the finished product. Mm. So yeah, water's a huge thing. Yeah. I think it's probably the most important thing that you do. Cause at the end of the day, a malt is a malt. You can use Golden Promise or Extra Pale. It's still going to give you pretty much the same flavour. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I can't... I mean, obviously, I know what pH is to shoot for throughout the various stages of brewing. Um, mm. But I'm, I'm... Well, I got an E in science, GCC science... Although, uh, if, if um, well, before today, because obviously they, they changed how they uh, were going to, quote-unquote, mark GCSEs. But <laughs> oh, be, be, yeah. be, my wife's a teacher, so... Uh, but before today, you know, I would have got a U. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, it's yeah, it's when, um, you know, if, if they'd have taught brewing science in school, I would have probably found it really, really interesting, um, you know, and, and because it's, it's yeah. like when I read about yeast and stuff, and I'm just like, um, I'm fascinated, you know, and, and it's... Uh, amazing that some people don't know that you know for we might think yeah like we'll give a temperature as an example like you know 19.1 degrees c and 19.2 degrees c for yeast is like you know tokyo to san francisco as far as you know the the (laughs) difference is concerned like it's just you know it's a big difference um yep, so imagine absolutely. if your beer runs up to 26.6 what what kind of flavor compounds you get in so yeah 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 i'm sure we've all made a mistake and let a beer get too hot during fermentation or too cold yes uh, yeah it definitely does does change the flavor mm. sure but so, some bits you want that flavor change like a saison you want to i always brewed those quite warm um and i experimented with quite yeast as well recently and that that was crazy. You could get that up to like 38, 40 degrees and it, it would not taste off. You wouldn't get any of those phenols or esters produced. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I need to do a bit more research into Kavite because it seems to be the yeast that quite a lot of these breweries are going for now. It's, it's got a slight farmhouse taste to it. I think Pomona Island are using it um, in most of their beers. I can certainly taste that flavor in there. Correct mm. me if I'm guys, if anyone's from Pomona's listening, I might be way off the mark, but I think they're using clay. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's, there's more to a beer than meets the eye, absolutely. Definitely. It's a whole, whole science, and I'm, I'm just at the bottom of a learning curve. I think there's guys out there that will know a shitload more than me. Yeah. Well, well, we'll come on to yeast, but so, but before we do, let, let's look at the grist bill. So, um, obviously, IPAs, people associate with hops, um, but I always think the backbone of a really good IPA is the grist bill. And yeah. I think that, um, you know, that there are plenty of beers that just use like a, a standard two-row pale malt and not much else. Mm. But on, I, I've always found adding something like Gold or Light Crystal or, or um, other specialty malts, you know, just, yeah. just bring out a little bit of sweetness to, to you know, balance, balance out um, those hops, particularly in like a, the kind of like more bitter West Coast 
style. So, I mean, what, what sort of considerations should we be making when we put our grist bills together so that you get a really good balance to and a, and a really good foundation um, for yeah. those big juicy flavours or that big bitterness you get with the West Coast IPA and that kind of thing? Yeah, foundation is a good good way to start on that. Um, I always think of the analogy of it being like a dance floor and if you've got a decent dance floor to go and dance on, you can you can show off. If you've got a bumpy old one, you're quite likely to fall over um, or bump into someone else and things go wrong. So if you get that base beer spot on... Is that the voice of experience speaking, by the way? Hey? <laughs> Is that the voice of experience speaking, by the way? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm quite a good dancer. I'm all right. Well, I think I am. <laughs> they call me Jad and Johnny. <laughs> I think the base beer has to be spot on. You can't You can't hide it with throwing hops on top of it. If you've made a, a bad a bad basic beer and then you try and hide that with something else, it, it just shines through. You, you can definitely see that. So the basic beer has to be good, but not too over the top if you're trying to show off a certain hop. Mm. Um, these New England IPAs, there definitely has to be the right level of sweetness and body in that beer. Yep. Um, if you brewed something dry um, and thin and you put the hops on it, you're going to end up with something more, maybe like West Coast or the the no coast beer um you're certainly not going to hit the new england level yeah and i've seen quite a few beers labeled as nipas which basically aren't but i think that's going back to marketing they're, they're trying to brew a nipa perhaps um haven't quite hit the mark but still sell it as a nipa and i think that's wrong mm. so what sort of mash temp would you go in at oh pretty high yeah be high with these um I tried pushing 70, 71 with a beer once. It was perhaps a bit too high, but um, yeah, you're around about that mark. Definitely over 68. Yeah. You can tell I'm, I'm trying to glean information from you after my epic fail with, with the Nipper I brewed. <laughs> well, I'm all for information. I, I'm happy to share whatever information people want to want to hear, you know. Mm. Yeah, I listened to your podcast with Big Drop, which was a few years ago now, I think. Um, but he was really cagey about his process. He didn't want to tell you how he did it. He didn't want to tell anyone how he did it because I think he even said that quite a few breweries had asked him, you know, how do you produce these low alcohol beers? How do you do it? And he just wasn't prepared to share the information. I think that's because he signed a legal document (laughs) to not share that information. (laughs) Well, I I can kind of get it if you've got a USP and no one else is brewing that kind of style that, you know, the, the whole business is built around that. Why would you share it? Um, but I think collaborating with other breweries, you, you learn from each other, and that information is should be freely exchanged between breweries. You know, you're all in the same boat. Hmm. Not share the information. It, there's only so many customers and so much money to go around, I guess, and we're all after the same share of that market. But instead of the market just being one amount of money, I think it's grown and it's it's stretched so that everybody's got a chance to get a bit of the market that's probably going to change soon i think it's probably reaching its um height perhaps you can start seeing a few breweries failing but sharing information for me is is key i've i think cloudwater will into that when i first met someone at a festival i asked him about his water treatment he he was straight away jumping on onto the yeah, database found the information he wanted and did a screenshot of, there you go that's that's what salts we put in that beer mm. how open can you be that's phenomenal that's and they I'm... know that i'm going to go away and i'm going to try and brew that beer and it'll taste nothing like theirs because they've got <laughs> a brew house 
different model. They've got a different process, but yep. they're willing to share the information much for the betterness of the industry. And I think that's what, amazing. That's to be applauded. So you know, if anyone approaches me asking for information, I'm quite happy to share it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love about the industry. You know, I, lo- I love the openness. I've got a friend that runs a coffee roastery and he, he said, and he's, he's also like a home brewer. And he said that whenever he asks other brewers, yeah, people are willing to share stuff, you know, lend him hops or equipment or whatever, you know. But when it comes yeah. to coffee, it's like, it's like, you know, you don't go there. It's a closely guarded <laughs> secret. You know, I'm not going to tell you anything about how we roast our beans or whatever, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's move on to hops. Before we do, though, this, this, the um, double dry hops IPA is, is singing out to me. Have you finished the other one already? Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm afraid I have. Um, but to be <laughs> fair, I only had half of it. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. there you go. My, um, my, my missus is, is probably only had half of her half. Um, but I was always that guy when you went to a pub that, um, you know, drank quicker than everyone else. Yeah, and went home before everyone else, or stayed out latest. Uh, yeah, I've been busted. Yeah, pro- probably, <laughs> probably, probably went home before everybody else. Um, Nothing wrong with that, mate. Yeah. So, just before we talk about hops, talk, talk to me about um, Forgotten Dreams and y- your process behind brewing that. And um... uh, yeah, Forgotten Dreams, right? So that was that's got a special place in my heart. That beer, that was probably the first beer that um, made it out to the mass market in cans. Um, we've been bottling beers before then and sales weren't great on bottled beers and I think cans were really taking off and people were starting to look at bottled beers and seeing them as maybe more traditional style of beers in those so as soon as we moved over to cans um, that beer flew absolutely flew we we sold um, a few cases of that to an online retailer called Premier Hop who I'm sure you've heard of um, they got a phenomenal range and they've been an absolute support for us they've been brilliant um, so Rohit if you're listening you're an absolute legend you, mm-hmm. you, he's probably the, um, the the first company that we sold it to outside of outside of Cornwall um, and it was a great move because the love we got from Instagram from that beer people are posting it straight away I, I remember standing in the brewery that night and it had just gone out on sale and he sold out within five minutes, I think. Yeah. As soon as it went on there, I was like, wow, people really do like this beer. And the post started to flood Instagram then. People saying, wow, who are these guys? This beer is incredible. I really like this beer. How can it taste like this? It's only five, 5.3. Um, and so that started to get get us noticed. So Forgotten Dreams for me was it's probably my favourite beer out of all the beers that we brew. I absolutely love that beer. So, um, I mean, j- just for just for clarification, what what makes a double dry hopped IPA double dry hopped, and at what point are you double dry hopping the double dry hopped IPA? Yeah, yeah, blurred, blurred lines again with the brewery now because I think I'm going to stop labelling things as double dry hop because a lot of the stuff we do is double dry hopping compared to other breweries anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe if I if I say it's going to be double dry hops, it's double. It's not going to be quite double the amount that we put in, but it's going to be significantly more than we normally put in. Yeah. But we put a lot in anyway. Um, so that, that I can't remember exactly off the top of my head how many grams per litre that one is, but yeah. for 5% beer, it had a lot of lot of hops in it. Which are all late hops, you know, put them in the whirlpool, mm. put them in the fermenter, don't put any in the boiler. 
It's not. It's um, nice. It's got. It's got a nice. Um, it's got a nice bitterness to it. It's, yeah. it's kind of like a good good halfway house between like a you know a good night you know a good IPA with that bitterness and, and a New England IPA I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> I wanted to make it drinkable so that you have a sip and you get all the flavours, you get the aromas, and then you get left with that. Oh, I want another sip. So mm-hmm. you know, before you know it, you finished it and you're like, oh, that's gone. Yeah, I want another one. But I- you're not going to be smashed because. If you drink, if you do that with the double IPAs, which again are equally drinkable, you, you can't have more than a couple before you start to really feel it. No, absolutely. Um, sorry, I, I have to say. So um, as we said earlier about sharing the beer with my wife, I, I thought I'll be technological, open Messenger and send her a message, right? Yeah. <laughs> so which is what I did, but I didn't realise when I was messaging her that I was also messaging our neighbours Chris and Gary. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I messaged him saying um, like the, the second beer is here, I'm ready for you to collect love. <laughs> And I just had a response as you were sort of talking, saying, I thought we were getting free beer when we saw the kisses. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have them knocking on my door. On the door. There you go. But um, there you go. I can tell them about your beers and encourage them to buy them. So, so yeah, yeah just, just, just talking about hops then. So hops, hops are obviously the star of the show when it comes to IPAs. So like, how do you decide on what varieties to use in various styles? Because obviously the, the main contenders tend to be Citra, Simcoe, yeah. Mosaic. And you can you can come across the same variation on a, th- a theme with those three hops. Um, so, like, do, do you experiment with other flavor combinations than rather than just reinventing the juice bomb with those hops? Like, yeah, absolutely. I, I, what I try and do is um, buy the hops that are in season, so they're going to be the freshest. When when you make a mistake in brewing is by buying cheap hops. That's mm. that's that's massively a mistake. Don't buy the hops that maybe the bigger brewers that contract loads have decided actually no that's not great and that hit the spot market and you buy those because they look alluringly cheap. You're trying to save a few quid here and there. And it's, yeah, that's that's a big mistake. You should definitely just spend the money on the decent hops. Buy the best hops you can. Yep. Because when you're putting that many hops in a beer, if there's anything wrong with them, they're slightly oxidized you know the, the the beta acids in there really do make a difference and you can get a really astringent flavor if if they've um degraded slightly so yeah buy the freshest hops you can so what i'll tend to do is just see what's what's in season and what's available and buy those um there's a lot of new zealand hops on the market at the minute so um i've got some galaxy and some nelson sovin that will be going into a few beers that are coming up um so yeah, it's, it, I think seasonality is important. Mm. It's certainly important with veg. My wife grows loads of veg in her allotment, and so we eat seasonal veg. Try not to get it flown off around the world, but obviously with hops that's different because the English hops are not quite as renowned for their punchy flavours as our New World and mm. uh, American hops are. Yeah, well, well done for getting some Galaxy and Nelson So in there. I mean, they they can be like rocking or shit to get hold of. Yeah, well, Galaxy especially. It, um, yeah, I, I've spent a fair bit of money on Galaxy just lately, so there'll be a few beers that I'll have Galaxy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you're right. It is like rocking horse. Yeah, I, I think the time before that, I bought some was probably 18 months ago. It's really, it is. It was really hard to get hold of. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's a great hop. But it's, it's you got to be careful. You don't overdo it with it because it is very dominant. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question. Like, when, when does when does it become too much? 
in terms of like hopping? Is there is there a mark when you can go over? Because I, I read one article once saying that anything over 25 grams per liter will just yeah. be lost on people's palates. So it makes it makes no difference whether you're doing 30 or 35. Now, I know you said you do 35 grams per liter. Like, um, wh- where does it become too much? Yeah, well, it's oversaturation, I think, is a phrase that I've heard banded around. Um, there's only so much saturation that you can do. And then once it's reached that point, you into dimin- the diminishing returns. And I, I don't know, I'm on the fence about that because I've, I've tried a few beers... Um, with 20 and then do the same recipe brew it with like a double dry so you go up to 35 and you get such different flavours you do you get it, it's perhaps not so clean it's a bit yep. more muddled perhaps um, but you get such different flavours you get deep flavours you get like licorice flavours or um, crazy flavours that you really wouldn't expect to find in a beer um, I've had somebody say that they had blue cheese flavours in a beer wow. and they, they weren't really sure but it really worked and yeah I, I think just go for it, push it, see see what you can do with the beer. Mm. As long as it doesn't taste over astringent and bitter, I think that's what the problem with an over hopping can be if you do it at the wrong time or you're using old hops. Yep. Let's, it's let's... definitely worth experimenting, trying to see how far you can push that boundary. There's going to be a point, obviously, when there's no point in putting any more, and all you're doing is just costing yourself extra money because. Mm hops are not cheap they're probably the most expensive part of the brewing process yeah certainly with the beers that, that i make they're gonna be probably three quarters of the cost i mean let's let's talk about dry hopping because i remember once brewing a beer that um i i must con- i'll i'll openly confess i pretty much took um the, the uh the recipe of a really well-known scottish brewery that they mm-hmm. publish in their diy yeah. brewing book that should remain nameless and 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 tried brewing it on a commercial scale so for uh, six brewers barrels yeah. um it called for something like 600 grams of bittering hops and then Jeez. like an absolute shed load of dry hopping and that's all there was no like hops that flame out and i remember thinking like what if this all goes wrong and you know i remember <laughs> tasting it at the end of fermentation being all like that just just really doesn't really taste of much at all and then i dry hopped it with all this simcoe it was it again it was simcoe simcoe mosaic and um citra yeah dry hopped it with an inch of its life i must have lost several casks it were all most of it went to casks some went to bottles um you know lost several casks through like hop slurry from the conditioning tank but this Mm. beer absolutely flew out and you know, some pubs were just like, "Can we get more of that? Can we get more of it?" You know, it's just like uh, there were so few casks in the end because of all the dry hopping. I was like, "I'm really sorry, I can't give you." And they were just like, "It was amazing, and it tasted so good, both in bottle and um, in cask." But I, I noticed when I bought it was bottle conditioned, and I noticed after about a week, you know, as little as a week, that some of that aroma and flavour start to dissipate. And then yeah. after a couple of months, when I had like a, a, a case left that I kept for myself and I, I took to a party, people said, oh, this is a really nice beer. But I was just like, this isn't a patch of what it was when it first came out. So like, yeah. let's, so, so, talk to me about dry hopping then. Talk to me about like the timings, the, the quantities, um, you know, doing it in a uni tank versus an open top fermenter. And 
what are some of the best ways to conserve all that aroma and flavour, particularly given that you're spending a lot of money to have yeah. that aroma and flavour in your beer? Yeah, okay. Um, I think a uni tank is crucial. I wouldn't even attempt it in an open-top fermenter. No way, not on the levels that um, we're hopping these beers. Why is that? You're just, you're just opening yourself up to oxidation and oxygen is the worst enemy of super hoppy beers. Yep. Some cask beers thrive for two or three days with oxygen in there and it's absolutely fine. But the minute you put oxygen in these beers, they go brown. It changes the profile. It tastes like wet cardboard or sherry. You know, it's it's instantly recognisable, a beer that's oxidised. It just does not look right. It hasn't got that bright brightness to it. It hasn't got the opacity. It just looks dull. Yeah. So, no, I, I think unless, unless you've got a system of keeping that CO2 blanket over the top of your beer and you open fermenters and goodness knows how you do it but unless you can get that nailed i would never attempt that i think a uni tank is crucial um and the timing as well you, you talked about timing there that, that's important too if you're going to keep your yeast then you obviously don't want to dry hop until you've harvested your yeast but in a uni tank that's really hard to top crop uh, which is obviously the best time to take yeast. So you've got to try and get that to the bottom of your cone and get that out before you dry hop it. Um, so it depends on what beer I'm brewing as to whether I'll do that or not. But let's say I'm not going to keep the yeast and it's come to the end of its end of its life and you just think, okay, I'm just going to do that. I would go for a new pitch on the next one. Then definitely dry hop during active fermentation when you've got some points left. It, it makes such a difference. Yep. It gives you those juicy flavours. I, I think I read somewhere once that there's some um, geraniol transformation. So those geraniol smells are amazing. They, they really are. And um, if you can if you can get that process sorted, then your flavours are just going to change completely. Yep. You get you get such unique flavours from doing that. Um, you can still get them if you take your yeast out and dry hop again. But I, I think the best beers are the ones that during active fermentation you you do a massive charge because i think you, you probably lose some from your blow off if it's if it's really going for it um but yeah if it's got maybe two or three points left do it then yeah so you definitely get benefit from doing that so for brewers on on your kind of scale um and and i say your kind of scale uh, and i'm not just saying sort of brewers who do six hectoliters but um brewers with you know relatively small microbreweries with uni tanks and and stuff but they don't have like um hot rockets and that's... and all and the kind of stuff you'd see when you go to magic rock or cloud water you know um mm. that's look, looks like sputnik and it's going to take off to mars yeah. um like how, how how are you managing to dry hop without introducing oxygen to those beers because you, you sometimes see these videos, don't you, online? And they're always really funny where, you know, there's somebody that's kind of like tentatively taking off the tri-clamp from the top and then yeah. all of a sudden it's like, you know, a fountain and it's going everywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's not high-tech at all, I'll, I'll be honest. It's not high-tech. I, I would very much love to have a hot rocket, although I think they start at 25 kilos as a charge, which wow, that's way too much for what I'm doing. So I'd probably be quarter filling the damn yep. thing. And you've got to worry about purging it and clear it, clearing out all the oxygen out of that anyway with the massive headspace you're going to get in that. But one of those would be nice. Maybe as, as the brewery expands, we'll, we'll look at that. But um, it's it's pretty low tech. There's a, there's a four-inch tri-clamp port at the top of the fermenter. Um, 
open that up but a little tip just run some co2 through the um if you've got a cip arm on the top of your through that as you're tipping your hops in um just maybe it's me being over cautious but it, it just makes me think that if there's any oxygen around it's going to get pushed out um you, you can't mitigate for the oxygen that might well still be in the hot pellets themselves but yep. i don't think any process is going to really get rid of those um but if you're doing that whilst the yeast is still present they should mop up those last few bits anyway and reduce the oxidation yep it's, it's nothing more more exciting than that i'm afraid it's just snip the bag <laughs> open make sure it's a fresh bag maybe don't use half bags or hops that you've stored for any length of time save those perhaps for the whirlpool because you can get different flavors by using slightly aged hops on that but yeah use the freshest hops you can straight in mm. a whole bit at once jobs are good and- well, well we'll come back to talking about uh dissolved oxygen uh but let, let's look at the last building block of beer so yeast i mean i think anyone listening to this will know that yeast plays a massive part in the production of flavor and aroma compounds particularly when it comes to our- a beer like an IPA. I mean, what sort of yeast strains should we be going for when we're doing various IPAs and what impacts do they have on the aroma and flavour? Because I noticed on, um, I don't know if it was all of these, on one of them, I saw the word London Fog somewhere. Uh, yeah. That was it on the double dry hopped IPA. Is it on the other ones as well, the London Fog? Oh, it is, yeah. On the... Yeah, it's London Fog on um, this Monster Wave and on Forgotten Dreams. I think that's a really, really underrated yeast is superb it, it's, it's a bit of a bugger to get it to flop down yeah um if you if you want to crop from it you've really you've got to wait a couple of extra days to get enough yeast for the next brew um but yeah it's such a juicy juicy beer if you brew with that as long as you get the counts right um so yeast is yeast is one of those things that i, I i'd like to go and be with a yeast expert for a week and just find out a bit more about it because I, I think it's one of the topics that i'm not uh, massive expert on but as long as you use quality yeast and don't don't try and push it too far i think three three bruises as far as i'll push it with these and then i'll get a new pitch yeah i really don't like to go beyond that i just don't trust that the process i've got yeast brinks which i've had made to store the yeast and they're as sterile as sanitary as can be but i, I really think that needs work that's yep. that's part that's part of the process that i really should try and improve on so i could perhaps get maybe six or seven generations out of my yeast because mm. um, it all costs money at the end of the day and if, you, if you're talking about two or three hundred quid for a pitch of yeast every time um that's that's quite a saving you yeah know, that's a, it's a tv for someone isn't it so i mean t- talk about dry yeast then because um you know there's obviously yeah. a, a go-to for mo- a lot of breweries is like a you know a, just a, a dried yeast whereas i i've tend to find that a wet yeast will just give you a, a I don't know how to put it just like a softness that you don't yeah. get with dried yeast like I mean have you, have you ever used any dried yeast to, to make IPAs and stuff or, or will you yeah. literally go oh, you have yeah yeah used um, used a few different types SO4 it's, it's no good for the style of beer yeah I make um, Windsor yeast tried that no that that didn't really work for me either. And there's a Lalamand um, East Coast as well, New England IPA strain. Um, again, I, I didn't really get on with that. I, I just don't think it gave me the, the flavours that you can get from these if you go for a wet yeast. Um, London London 3 is probably a, a pretty good one to go for. Um, it gives you a nice hazy beer. It doesn't 
massively flock out. Um, but it doesn't take as long as London Fog, perhaps. Sim- similar profile, perhaps, but I think London Fog edges it for me. I'd, I'd definitely go for a wet pitch every time if you if you can. Yeah. I know you've got to water it and you've got to maintain it. Like I said, you've got to have ways of storing it and making sure that it doesn't get contaminated. Whereas with a dry one, it's convenient. You just rehydrate it and pop it in. Happy days. You could perhaps reuse it a few times if you like, but it's the convenience side of the dry use that I think a lot of brewers go for. Yeah. But it's not always convenience that's important. I think the end product has to be what's driving you towards your process. Mm, if you want to make a good beer, you've got to use good ingredients. Um, we use a company called um, Sure Brew, and um, they they provide all our yeast for us, and he, he's superb. He, he's a there's a wealth of information in that guy. Yeah. So anyone that's looking to buy buy any yeast, I recommend you use those guys. Amazing. I mean, we touched upon this earlier, but I mean, talk to any brewer at the moment, especially those that can their beers like self, and you'll encounter conversations about the adverse effects of dissolved oxygen or keeping the beer cool and fresh on aroma and flavour, amongst other things. Um, yeah. I guess I've got two questions. Uh, what what's, what things can brewers do to ensure that their beers remain in optimum conditions um, when it comes to hops, especially when it comes to canning. And secondly, um, as I was going to ask earlier, did you get like a mobile canner like outside your garage or like how did that work? <laughs> Getting your beer no, to can? No, well, yeah, we didn't go down the mobile canning route. There's been a number of horror stories about canners going wrong. Um, and a local brewery to me, Black Flag, they had numerous problems with the canners either not turning up, you know, cancelling them at the last minute, and then they've got fermenters full of beer that needs to be out so they get the next brew on. That will cost money. Or canning it and it just being oxidised and having to do a product recall, which costs thousands, doesn't it? You've, you've wasted all that beer. You've paid for it all to be canned and there's no comeback because they just seem to be a law unto themselves. And this um, week, your reputation... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, there may be people out there that will buy that beer once. It might be their first introduction to your beer, and if it's an oxidised fuck-up from someone else making your process go wrong, then your reputation is ruined for that one person, isn't it? You know? Yeah, then well, the, the, I had that exact problem again. Um, with, with the beer I brewed, with my brand. Um, it oxidised. Yeah. The reasons I'm not going to go into on the podcast, but it, 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 was, it wasn't wholly my fault. And, um, you know, it, 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 I, I launched it out there anyway and I got utterly slammed or untapped and then I, I recalled it and, you know, and this was meant to be my big sort of send-off beer as well. And I was gutted because in tank, it was, a, it was a double IPA. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. It had laurel in it. I um, can't oh, even nice. remember the other hops, you know. It's, it's, and it was only a small batch as well, you know, and it, it just, I was gutted. And, and, you know, yeah. it's largely through no fault of my own, it, it got oxidised and yeah. I had to deal well, with all the flight. The process is out of your hands then, isn't it? You've, you've taken all this care and attention to make this beer as you wanted it. And you taste it in your fermenter and it's, yes, it's singing to you. It's perfect. And then if someone else comes along and fucks that up for you, it can, yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. All that so how, and, how did you get your beers into camp? Um, it's all done here. Um, designed a little process oh, to fill the cans and seam them here. Okay. It's, it's very labour intensive. Um, so it takes me 
quite a long time to fill them. Um, mm. But I did a lot of tests, a lot of fiddling and faddling around, a lot of guinea pigs were involved, which, funnily enough, were, were quite keen to be involved with trying beers. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ooh, pick me, pick me. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's amazing when you ask friends to help you out how many you find you've got. Um, yeah, I did, did a lot of tests on it, um, bought a DO meter, um, which is since bloody broken, which is a bit of a shame. I've got to save up for a new one, but um, they're not yeah, cheap, are they? <laughs> I was looking at one earlier. I'm like, how much? Yeah, they're not cheap. Um, I bought mine secondhand from the states and thought I got myself a bargain, but it didn't didn't last more than eight months, and it's it's broken now. I've got no comeback on that. So hey, you live and learn, don't you? Mm. Um, so yeah, looking forward to spending five grand on a new <laughs> on another one. Um, but yeah. Did a load of tests and found found that the process I was doing was absolutely spot on. It's, it takes time because you're filling them one by one, but um, it was maintaining the integrity of that product was key to me. So if it took a bit longer, yep. I didn't mind if it used a little bit more CO2. That's a small price to pay for. I'm getting a product that's you know you're drinking it there and it probably looks and tastes the same as the day I canned it near enough. Yep. Um, so I've got no problems with the process there at all. So, so talk to us about this process because I'm sure there are quite a few listeners out there being like, "Tell us, tell us, oh, why is one of your secrets?" And I know <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I'm relaunching my, um, I, I say commercial, but it is a commercial brewery. It's just you know one barrel, in, and yeah. in my cellar. So, yeah. kind, of, kind of like you, but smaller. Um, but you know, I've, I've, I've invested in, um, a, you know, a can seamer, a unitank, and so on because you know I want. I, I, I want to make beers like this because again, coming back to what you were saying earlier, I found exactly the same thing that I hit two, um, I hit 2018 and all of a sudden it was like someone turned a tap off in terms of sales. And I remember asking a few people that stopped my beers, like what's, what's the deal? You know, mm. like these would fly out and all of a sudden they're not. And yeah. I remember um, my, my good friend, Sean from beer central in Sheffield saying, that had fallen down the same crack as Thornbridge had, where basically Thornbridge had moved from 500 mil bottles to 330. This is before they did their rebrand and everyone yeah. loved them again. Um, <laughs> and um, basically the bottle was too small for traditional drinkers, but not crafty enough, quote unquote, for your, you know, your, your dipper, neeper drinkers. Yeah. Um, and I thought, when I, if if and when I relaunch Emmanuel's, which I'm doing, um, I'm going to go into can. So I'm super super interested to know about your process and and how you're doing it and how you're managing to keep those oxygen levels super low, because you you wouldn't take tasting those two beers and the other one I had. You like you, again, as I said, you, you, they're they're as far as I'm concerned, they're flawless. I'm, I mean, I'm gutted. I finished them all. I need to get all some more. Like, you know, they 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 are such good beers. Thank you. Man. So, like, how 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 are you doing that? Talk us um, through like the process of it's it's in your uni tank. Yeah. It's, okay, how do you get, it's, how do you move it to package? It's had its conditioning time. Um, it's carbonated exactly how you want it. Um, actually, I, I carbonate it slightly more than I aiming for in the in the finished product because. Um, what what is absolutely key when you're canning is to get foam. Yep. If, if you don't get any foam, then you're going to get oxidised beer because that headspace in the can, you know, a 440 mil can will hold about maybe 470 mil of 
of product, yep. 468, something like that. Um, so you need that level of foam on the top. So when you, because I don't know whether you've seen the canning process at all, but it's it's basically this it's yeah, a tube yeah. as you see it now. It's got the moulded bottom, yep. but the top is the open bit, um, which is where you fill it, and then you put that round cap on the top, and it that's the seaming process. It it bends round double a double matrix on the top there stops any oxygen getting in or out or any product getting out. Um, so as so long as your seaming is spot on as well and you've got foam when you've filled it and you cut that quickly and seam it, then you're good to go. So that's, you're that's using key. like a, a beer gun or something or what, what is it? How, you, how is it you're purging those cans? Yeah, it's like stuff. a modified beer gun. Um, it's, I couldn't find exactly what I wanted on the market. There wasn't, wasn't anything available and I didn't have... 50 grand to throw at a canning machine. So, yeah, I, I looked at a lot of ways that commercial canning machines worked. Um, so, built this sh- like a shroud that goes around the top of the can. You can purge the can, get all the oxygen out of it. You're not going to get all of it out, but get the vast majority of it out, get, get the oxygen levels low, low enough, get that filled with the shroud around it so the oxygen can get in there while it's being filled, and then quickly get the cap on top and seam it straight away. Yeah. Um, and whilst that's going on, it's, it's like a, I'm like an octopus when I'm doing this. Thing. I wish I had a extra pair of arms. That would make life so much more easy. But yeah. um, you quickly become ambidextrous, you know. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it does take time, and it's not perfect. And you know, I, I've reached a stage now where I've kind of had enough of that packaging day because it takes so long to do it all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's de- the canning machine is definitely on my uh, Christmas list. Um, see if Father Christmas would be nice enough and get some get some crowdfunding going, get some money behind it and spend the money on that. So I think it's money well spent. Canning is not going to go away. I don't think it's a flash in the pan. I think it's here to stay. And it, it's, a, it's a good way to keep your product, you know. It's it's environmentally friendlier than bottles, I think. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get any light-struck beers. You're not going to get any oxygen in there. Because no matter what people say, a crown cap will let oxygen in. Mm. The ways about that yeah so i mean do you think a good ipa is harder to brew than most other styles because i think there's an expectation isn't there from consumers that every ipa should be a contender with the likes of like you know verdant and dare and cloud water and so on like do you, do you think they're harder yeah. to brew that's a good question that really is um i don't know what people's expectations are when they try a brewery i think if you've not tried a brewery before you're hoping for the best from what you, you bought but your expectations perhaps aren't that high and you're pleasantly surprised when it is actually nice mm. you know <laughs> i get sent beer by um people all the time and some bad some awful in fact if anyone else wants to send me beer please feel free i'll, I'll give you honest feedback on it um no problem with that uh but yeah it, it, it is a difficult style to nail it really is because like we touched on earlier there are some pretty shocking examples of it um but I think those are made more just for commercial reasons. They're just breweries banging out money to cover their cover their expenses rather than trying to brew the best beer they possibly can and trying to get their reputation as high as possible. Um, looking at the feedback that customers give us on our beer, Untapped is a wealth of resource for that for us. Um, I know a lot of brewers poo-poo it and say that how can you even look at the comments that certain people make about your beer because some people can be pretty pretty brutal oh yeah you know i've had one or two that like point point five didn't like it 
Okay, didn't like it. Point five. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> that's that's not really a score you should be honestly given a beer. But at the end of the tasted day, tasted too much like cloud water. Point <laughs> yeah, right. five. I think you don't want to get stuck into the rut of taking it personally. It's it's not it's not me that they're talking about. It's it's the beer. So as long as you don't get caught up in a well, how can you say that about my beer? How dare you? You just got to take everyone's opinions is valid because it's their opinion and they're they're, um, justified to have that Um, some people will always rate beers lowly I I looked at one guy and I didn't think he'd rated any beer above two in his whole life (laughs) so that's just the way that some people are so um, good luck to them perhaps but the the feedback you get through untapped I think is is vital and if there's any customers that do say there's a problem with the beer I'll straight away get onto it and talk to them find out a bit more what it was that was wrong for them and see mm. if I can't put that right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been amazing having you on the podcast, Johnny. Um, and I, I would wholeheartedly recommend that people get hold of your beer. So how, how can people do that? Well, if we're in Cornwall, there's a few venues in Cornwall. Um, there's a great bottle shop down in Truro called Red Elephant, who they've just managed to reach their crowdfunding target of whatever it was, um, to move their shop into a bigger venue. And I think they're stretching it to um, see if they can get another venue in Falmouth because Falmouth is the place to be in Cornwall for um, beers, or at least it used to be. There's a few shops that were stocking us and have sadly gone to the wall in recent times. Um, so, yeah, there's Red Elephant. Look for those locally. There's the Cornish Pizza Company. They stock, they stock Pipeline. You can get a cracking pizza. Wow, what a combo. Pizza and IPA. So yeah, that's a winning combination. But other than that, um, there's quite a lot of shops in Leeds, quite a few online places. London, Metropolis, Bath Metropolis, Premier Hop. Um, just jump on our website and have a look on our stockist page. There's quite a few on there. I don't think we've listed everybody, but there's probably 20 or 30 to choose from on there. Amazing, brilliant. Well, thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Yeah, no problem, Nick. Anytime. Um, here if you need me, mate. And send some beers if you want any criticism good or bad (laughs) indeed I will thanks for tuning in to the Hot 4 podcast this week don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business so hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers until next time, cheers. Right, so